Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Wednesdays with Wesley. It's been a few weeks since we've engaged in our weekly move through Wesley's sermons. Glad to be back. My name is Bob Kaler. I'm your host. I was off for a little bit here in the month of September, had a chance to do a week-long retreat at Quiet Waters in Denver, and I encourage those of you who are clergy to look that up. I was really needing a tune-up after COVID and needing some intensive time to work on myself and my own spiritual life and and, uh, psychological health, and so I had a chance to go up there for a week Thanks to my staff parish relations committee for giving me the opportunity to do that. And then I had a chance to go back to Asbury Seminary, my alma mater, spend a few days there to meet with professors and to work some in the library doing some sermon planning. And then I went to the New Room Conference and saw many of you there at the New Room Conference in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Always a great opportunity to gather with other Wesleyans It's my annual conference. I love going to New Room every year. I haven't missed it since the very first one, and it was great to be back this year with a full house, about 2,100 people there for the conference, hearing great preaching, great music, and the the workshops and things. I took about 20 pages of notes while I was there and got to hear Kevin Watson lecture on Perfect Love, his latest book. I really still encourage you all to take a look at that because that is one of our Methodist distinctives. But we're back here on the podcast, and we're looking at a sermon today that I think is an important one, kind of a qualifier to some of the stuff we've talked about before. Now, as you're listening to this on Wednesday, October 6th, I believe it is, this past Sunday, I will have preached on the new birth and talked about the idea that in the new birth, one of the marks of the new birth, we receive power over sin. And in this particular sermon, which Wesley wrote in 1763, he gets into the distinction of what he's talking about when he's talking about having power over sin, and talking about what, in effect, he does not mean by that. And this is one of the places where Methodism often is very misunderstood by other Christian traditions, that when Wesley was talking about Christian perfection, many people assume he was talking about sinless perfection, that there was no sin in us once we are justified or sanctified. We never have to deal with it again. It is completely out of our lives. That is not what Wesley says, and he makes that distinction here in this particular sermon, which is based on 2 Corinthians 5.17, that famous passage where Paul says, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Um, I want to make sure that we dive into this in some detail, and uh, I want to tell you I've been using Tom Oden's uh, marvelous book, Uh, Scriptural Christianity, John Wesley's Scriptural Christianity, where he takes a a, sort of an overview of each of these sermons and gives a a doctrinal overview of what Wesley's actually talking about here. It was very helpful to me. I'm going to quote Odin several times through this particular episode. I, I think this is an important distinction for us, particularly as Wesleyans, to understand what we mean by sin, having power over sin, how we are saved from sin, and how we deal with sin in our lives after we have come to a place of salvation, after we have been justified. And so the bottom line for Wesley in this sermon, if you get nothing else from it, is that 
He says that while sin may remain in a Christian, it need not reign over him or her. That even when we are saved from sin, we will still wrestle with it, we'll still struggle with temptation. But how we do so, how we get back on track when sin does get the best of us is the focus of what Wesley's talking about here. And again, the text, 2 Corinthians 5.17, the main question that, that Wesley wants to deal with here is, is there then sin in him that is in Christ? Does sin remain in those that are born of God, or are they wholly delivered from it? And Wesley argues from the primitive church that even though people have been born again, they're still going to wrestle with three things. They're going to wrestle with flesh and blood, in other words, the desires of the flesh. They're going to deal with an evil nature, which we might characterize as original sin. And then wrestle also with principalities and powers, the evil influences of the world. Just because we become Christians, because we put our faith in Christ, those things don't go away. We have to learn how to deal with them. And here Wesley quotes from the Ninth Article of Religion of the Church of England. This is also in our Articles of Religion as Methodists. Original sin is the corruption of the nature of every man, whereby man is in his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth contrary to the spirit. And this infection of nature doth remain, yea, in them that are regenerated, whereby the lust of the flesh is not subject to the law of God. And there is no condemnation for them that believe, yet this lust hath of itself the nature of sin. So notice in this article of religion, it says that this infection of nature doth remain even in those who are regenerated, those who are baptized, those who have experienced the new birth. That the lust of the flesh wars against the law of God in us. And so in the new birth and in other sermons, Wesley makes it clear that those who are in Christ are free from the guilt and power of sin. But here he wants to make the distinction that we are not free from the presence of sin itself. And so he's dealing with two extremes here that tend to arise in Christian theology. One is one extreme is what we might say is the bondage extreme, which is fairly common, particularly in some reform circles. This view is, is kind of a rigid form of total depravity that says that the heart of the believer, even after new birth, is so corrupt that he or she cannot have any dominion over sin. Again, I've used this illustration before, but it's kind of like professional wrestling. When someone gets thrown across the ring, they bounce off the ropes, come back and get clotheslined. That we're just inevitably a prisoner of kinetic energy. We can't stop ourselves. We're going to sin, so we might as well just get used to it. That's one extreme understanding, that even though we're saved from the guilt of sin, we're not really saved from the power of sin. It's still going to be ruling over us. Not every Reformed person has this view. I want to make clear, if you're a Reformed person listening to this, I know that there are many degrees of this. But if you take it to its extreme, that tends where it, uh, tends where it, it seems to be where it tends to go, in other words. Uh, but many Christians still have this view. We're stuck in bondage, even if we've been freed. But Wesley says this view hardly leaves any distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. Salvation may be helpful in overcoming sin's guilt, being forgiven so that we can get to heaven, but that doesn't mean much right now in terms of having any power over sin. So we might be saved for heaven, but 
for now, we're still going to deal with it, and it's going to be a primary part of our lives. On another extreme, Wesley points out the view of the Moravians under Count Zinzendorf. Remember, the Moravians were very influential on Wesley, but here's where he differs with them on one particular point. He says they're well-meaning in this view, but they take it to an extreme. And Wesley characterizes their view as saying that true believers are delivered not only from the dominion of sin, but also from the being of inward sin, that even original sin no longer remains in the believer when they are born again. So when they're born again, all sin is immediately wiped out of their lives. But Wesley also points out, like I've pointed out about some of my Reformed brethren, that some of these Moravians, when pressed, did allow that sin remain, but did not reign in those born of God. So you've got two extremes here. Either we're totally depraved on the one hand and still bound by sin, even after the new birth, or on the other, we're totally freed from any kind of sin. And Wesley does not agree with either of these views. In fact, he offers a third way here that I think is helpful And it goes back to his definition of sin, which separates sin into inward and outward categories. Now, remember Wesley's definition of outward sin. It's any willful transgression of a known law of God. And we have said before, echoing Wesley, that this is the outward sin that is eradicated in the believer. Remember, we read from 1 John, whoever is born of God does not commit sin. He that commits sin is of the devil. And so when Wesley talks about the believer having power over sin as a result of faith and the new birth, this is the kind of sin that he's talking about here. We no longer have to commit outward willful sin. The Spirit enables us to say no. But there's another kind of sin, and that is inward sin, which Wesley defines as any sinful temper, passion, or affection, such as pride, self-will, love of the world, in any kind of degree, such as lust, anger, peevishness, any disposition contrary to the mind of Christ. Inward sin, in other words, is the product of our sin nature, and thus much harder to avoid and to eradicate. And this is the kind of sin Wesley is dealing with in this sermon. Not the outward kind, which can be avoided. We know it's wrong, and we choose not to do it. But inward sin, Wesley will say, still remains in the believer, But while it remains, it need not reign. The believer may have power over both inward and outward sin, but that doesn't mean sin is no longer a factor for him or her. It's still something we need to deal with, something to guard against, something of which to repent. And so Wesley builds his case using what many Methodists would call the quadrilateral. Now that term quadrilateral is not one that Wesley himself ever used, That term was developed by Methodist theologian Albert Outler Outler in the 1960s. And this was the idea that Wesley uh, viewed these things through the lenses of Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Now, quadrilateral implies that that's four sides of an equilateral uh, or, or an equal I didn't do well in geometry, but you're talking like a square with four equal sides. That's what I'm trying to talk about. And the idea being that scripture, tradition, reason, and experience are kind of all on that plane. That's not Wesley. Wesley believes scripture was primary, and that's what he's going to base his argument on here first. We have to make sure that we keep these things 
in mind, but recognizing that Scripture is always primary. And so he starts with Scripture in making his argument, and he quotes Paul in Galatians 5.17. For what the flesh desires as opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires as opposed to the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. Reading there from the NRSV. And so Wesley, quoting Paul here, says, we still have a war within us, even after we have been born anew. The flesh and the spirit war against one another. Then he moves on to 1 Corinthians 1-2, where Paul is speaking to believers who still struggle with being carnal. And yet, even though they struggle with this carnality, Paul does not say that they are no longer believers, that they had lost their faith. Indeed, Wesley says there are two contrary principles in believers— nature and grace, the flesh and the spirit. These run all the way through the letters of Paul, indeed all the way through the scriptures. And in every case, when Paul uses this distinction, he's pointing out these contrary principles to believers who are still wrestling with them, exhorting them to fight and conquer them by the power of faith. So, in other words, Paul assumes that even those who have come to faith in Christ are still going to struggle with sin. That would seem obvious, But there it is. Wesley then goes on to the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And in the letters of of John, of the Revelator to Ephesus and Pergamum, the letter of the angels, the angel is exhorting them to repent. And these are still believers. In other words, they still are able to sin. The point of all this is that the scriptures certainly assume that believers will still wrestle with inward sin. They'll still need to repent. They'll still need to be cleansed and forgiven. Sin remains, but again, it need not reign. And when sin rears itself, it does not mean that salvation is lost. God is always offering a way back through his forgiveness. So the scriptures, in other words, point out this this dual nature that we have, this this war between nature and grace, the flesh, the flesh and the spirit, it assumes that we're going to wrestle with sin even after we have been justified. But again, while sin remains, it need not reign. You're going to hear me say that a lot. I love that quote of Wesley. I think it's really the point of this entire sermon. So we've talked about Scripture. Now Wesley moves on to experience. And he says, To say that there is no sin in a believer is not only contrary to the word of God, it's also contrary to the experience of countless Christians. I mean, think about your own experience. When you became a Christian, did that suddenly mean that no temptation was ever presented to you ever again? That you never committed any sin after that point? Well, we know. We know what it is to have a heart bent toward backsliding, a proneness to wander from God and trust in the things of this earth. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, as we sing in that great Charles Wesley hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We experience pride, self-will, unbelief, and yet these do not defeat us or take away our salvation. We have the assurance of God in Christ, and we know that we can be forgiven for these things. Now again, that does not mean that we pursue them or shrug them off. It simply means that we are aware of those tendencies in us. We address them. We ask for forgiveness. We don't let them become willful habits in us. Hope you're seeing this distinction between a heart bent toward sinning, 
that sinful nature and the outward actions that we we um, we do. We can say no to those things, but we are always going to be at war inside of us in saying no to those things because that sin nature is still part of us. And so presuming absolute sinlessness after justification is also contrary, not just to scripture and experience, but also to the tradition of the church. Wesley says in both the Eastern and Western church, the idea that there is no sin at all in believers is a new doctrine. No ancient writers held it. And as Wesley puts it, whatever doctrine is new must be wrong For the old religion is the only true one, and no doctrine can be right unless it is the very same which was from the beginning. I love that. I I, I think that is uh, something we ought to quote and stamp everywhere. Tom Oden said the same thing. Essentially, in his uh, autobiography, he wrote that he wanted on his tombstone that he contributed nothing new to the study of theology. It's the old religion that's best. And so anything that's novel, this idea that we can be completely sinless, Wesley says, is is a fairly new idea. And again, this is not an idea that he's promoting. He's talking about perfection in terms of perfection and love, as we talked about in the sermon on Christian perfection back in Circumcision of the Heart. We'll return to those themes again and again here in the podcast. So he's appealed to Scripture, to experience, to tradition, and lastly— He appeals to reason in his argument, saying that the idea of complete freedom from all sin can lead to hopelessness. Because if it's true that absolute sinlessness is possible, then anyone who feels any sinful desire cannot possibly be a Christian. If I commit any sin after my justification, I can begin to believe that my justification itself is negated and I can conclude that I have lost my faith. And this is one of the reasons that many people despair at Wesleyan doctrine. Whenever I've preached it, you can watch people's faces kind of scrunch up because they assume that Wesley was preaching about sinless perfection. He was not. He was preaching about perfection and love, which includes power over outward sin, but that never shakes the possibility of sin entirely. The idea that we can have power over it indeed assumes that sin's still going to be with us. It's still going to be part of our lives. It's still going to be an effect on us. It has to be. We're, we're part of that sin nature. And yet, because of the Holy Spirit, because of the grace of God, because of the new birth, we can have power over that sin. Again, sin is still a possibility after justification, but while it remains, it need not reign. Now, there's a lot more in this sermon that I encourage you to read and go into in some detail. He goes on to develop his argument using some other proofs. But the bottom line, I think, for Wesley is found in this sentence. He says, I do not suppose any man who is justified is a slave to sin. Yet I suppose sin remains, at least for a time, in all that are justified. Let me say that again. I do not suppose any man who is justified is a slave to sin, yet I suppose sin remains at least for a time in all that are justified. In other words, sin no longer has any overwhelming power in the believer, but its consequences and residual effects continue. Here's how Tom Oden describes it. 
Is the justified person free from all sin? In principle, yes, because God's gift on the cross is the gift of freedom. And yet what is given sufficiently is received deficiently. Hence, the gift does not exempt human freedom from its defining conditions of finitude and time or from the daily struggle between flesh and spirit. As new creatures, we do not leave behind our creatureliness completely, but are restored to our original creation. I I love that idea that, that the cross gives the gift of freedom sufficiently. We receive what is sufficient for our salvation, and yet as we receive it as People bound in original sin who are have the image of God marred in us, we tend to receive it deficiently. And overcoming that deficiency is something we can't do by ourselves, and yet we need the Holy Spirit to help us do that. But the more we walk in holiness, the more we go on to perfection, the more aware of sin we become, the more we are able to address it and have power over it, we see that happen in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the paradox, Odin says, that those who turn out to be the most keenly aware of their inadequacy turn out to be saints, while those who are the least aware of their sin turn out to be the most distant from repentance. Walking in holiness is walking the way of awareness of sin and having power over sin And it's not simply walking alone. We walk with Christ. We walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Wesleyans, we recognize that we need to walk with one another. I point out the class and band meetings all the time, but that was the idea. That we know that overcoming sin is not something we can do on our own. We need help from one another. We need help from the Spirit. And so repentance continues in the Christian life. It doesn't happen just once. And yet the good news is we don't have to keep returning to the same sins over and over and over again. We're not doomed to that process. We can be aware of them. We can change our habits to avoid them. We can rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and the support of others to overcome them as well. That's the exciting part about this. There's there's an optimism in the Wesleyan tradition that says that sin no longer has to reign over us even if it remains in us. So to sum this up, Wesley doesn't buy into the idea that we have to sin after we are born again, that it's inevitable, that it's expected. I'm quoting Sunday that that old song from the Human League. Some of you grew up in the 80s or remember that. I'm only human of flesh and blood I'm made. I'm only human, born to make mistakes. Well, that might be true, but that doesn't mean we're inevitably going to always be in that state. Um, we're only human. But actually, sin makes us less than human. And the desire of God is that we come to full humanity. That's what the Spirit That's what his grace is designed to do, again, to return us and restore us in the image of God, the image of Christ for which we were made. So Wesley doesn't buy into the idea that we have to sin, that we have to stay in this place until we die. We We can overcome that in this life. We can be made whole and made new. But he also doesn't buy into the idea that sin can be completely eradicated in us when we come to faith, that it doesn't magically just go away. We're always going to deal with it because we live in a fallen world. 
and we are still people subject to original sin. There will still be conflict between the flesh and the spirit. The principalities and powers will continue to tempt us and attempt to draw us back into a life where they retain an enslaving power of sin over us. But Wesley believed that we have been set free from the power and the guilt of sin, and that power makes us even more aware of the sin in our lives. And when we're aware of it, we can avoid it because we have been given the power to do so. And in those times when sin gets the best of us, that awareness can call us to repentance, to seek forgiveness, to change our way going forward. Again, sin may remain in us, but it need not reign over us. And I think Wesley's explanation makes the most sense both biblically and psychologically. We Methodists don't give in to the shoulder-shrugging inevitability of sin, nor do we have a Pollyanna-ish worldview that sin and temptation magically disappear when we are born anew. We believe that God offers us power to overcome sin while recognizing that sin is something we're still going to be dealing with all of our lives on earth. And so knowing that, we can confidently turn to Christ who offers us freedom and forgiveness, and we can help spur one another on to a life where sin no longer reigns, even if it does remain. So I encourage you to take a look at this sermon. Uh, Read it carefully. There's a lot of good stuff in there that I think is helpful in explaining this. Because again, this is one of the places where Methodism is often misunderstood. Christian perfection, again, is not about sinlessness, but rather about perfection in love. We're moving toward this place where God wants us to be, toward the image of God we were created to be from the very beginning. And God is the one who is initiating that work in us and making it so in us. I hope you uh, enjoyed this edition of Wednesdays with Wesley. I certainly love getting into these sermons and uh, being able to teach from from Wesley's sermons. I hope that you have an opportunity to to do this in your own churches, even taking some of Wesley's sermons and preaching them, uh, not word for word, but but taking the concepts and preaching them in our churches, I think is a great way for us to help our people and help those understand the the Wesleyan tradition and the richness that is there, and the hopefulness that is there, that God is at work in us right now, that it's not just about heaven when we die, but rather about how salvation can be activated in us right now. As Ken Collins says, Christ came not to save us, uh, not just to save us from our sins, but he came to save us not in our sins. Uh, There's a better way of putting that quote. He came to save us from our sins, not in our sins. And so we're able to be free. Even though it still is out there, we're able to be free from the sin that would bind us. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at Rev B. Kaler. Send me your questions and comments at PastorBK at TLUMC.org. I'll be back here again next week with another sermon. But for now, I hope that you have an awesome week. Dive into some Wesley sermons. Make sure that you're diving into your means of grace. Have a great week.